This I recall to mine, and therefore I have hope, that as of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Trust in the Lord, and He will cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall not suffer the righteous to be moved. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. We need to focus tonight on our study of God's Word, so we'll start with a few moments of silent prayer, confession, if necessary, to make sure we are indeed ready to concentrate on the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can have your Word, that it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Your word is absolute truth, and you have said that it is by your word that we are sanctified, that we are brought to maturity as believers, and that the image of Christ is matured in us and his character produced in us. Now, Father, as we continue our study of James this evening, we pray that we might be encouraged and challenged by these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then... You get something of real interest over email. This is a reference to the biggest mathematical miracle in the world, and it ties in. This I, I've thought about some of these things, but not in this depth. And this is a um, it's a problem, Mister. Okay. This is one of those uh, things that really fits with what we've been studying in James. I think that one of the most important things we can come to understand is that God has supplied all of our needs. He has taken care of everything. His grace is sufficient for everything. And this relates to the principle that if God has solved the greatest problem in our life, which is sin and the cause of all problems, then God can solve any problem we face. Well, this sort of brings it down to ground level. Moses and the Israelites were in the desert But what was he going to do with them? They had to be fed. Feeding two or three million people requires a considerable amount of logistical supply. According to the quartermaster general in the army, it is reported that Moses would have had to feed, had to provide 1,500 tons of food each day. To bring that much food each day into the camp of the Israelites, it would require two freight trains, each a mile long. Besides that, they're out in the desert, so they would have to have firewood to use in cooking the food. That would require 4,000 tons of wood, a few more freight trains, each a mile long, just for one day. They were out in the desert for 40 days. Now, that's the miracle of manna. God's miraculous provision of manna overrode those logistical nightmares. But they were in the desert and they had to have water. Imagine the liquid needs of two to three million people. They only had enough to drink and wash a few dishes. It would take 11 million gallons each day and a freight train with tank cars 1,800 miles long just to bring water. Not only that, they had to get across the Red Sea. According to this, they did it at night. Now, if they had a narrow path, double file... That would be 
a line 800 miles long and require 35 days and nights to get through. So there had to be a space in the Red Sea three miles wide so they could walk 5,000 abreast to get over in one night. And then there's another problem. Each time they camped at the end of the day, a campground roughly two-thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island was required are a total of 750 square miles just for the nightly campground. And do you think Moses figured all this out before he left Egypt? Moses trusted in the Lord. See, if God could take care of those problems, God could take care of anything. That's a remarkable... I've never heard it broken down in such logistical terms. That is a quite a feat. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 13. We began 13 last time. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And here James is dealing with a certain group within the congregation who think that success in business Money and the things that money can buy is their ticket to problem solving. There's always a few. There's a lot of different ways people think they can somehow make it in life and have real joy and real happiness. Remember, that's the theme of the epistle back in James 1, how to have joy. And you have joy by endurance and perseverance in the Christian life. But he has to deal with a bunch of different people in the congregation. Each subgroup has a different concept of what it takes to have joy and happiness. And this group thinks it's accomplished through money. Now, the problem, as we saw last time, was arrogance. And so, in contrast to their arrogant self-reliance in verse uh, 14, 13 and 14, James says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will also do this or that. In other words, the problem here is a failure to submit to the Lord. And we saw that this is the main theme in this subsection of James, going back to James um, 4, 1 through 7, they are friends with the world instead of submitting to God, and they were called to uh, reverse their course. They're in reversionism. They're in carnal failure, and they were told they needed to submit to God and resist the devil, and he would flee for them. And we reviewed those ten imperatives from James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Now, when we get to this verse in uh, uh, verse 15, where we deal with the will of God in our life. How are we to understand and discover the will of God for our life? See, this is a problem that usually plagues younger people. The older you get, the less major decisions you have to make in life. And I think that's what people always wrestle with, is where should I live? Where should I go to college? What should I major in? What should my career be? Should I marry this person or that person? What kind of family should I have? These are all major decisions in life. Once you get past that in your 20s, seems like questions related to the will of God somehow fade into the background. But we need to review where we began last time and then introduce some new concepts so that we can understand what the Bible teaches us about God's will. First of all, the term will of God relates to God's sovereign volition with regard to His creation and His plans for His creatures relates to his sovereign volition. As soon as you talk about God's will, will indicates volition. So we're talking about God's plans 
for his creation and for his creatures. Usually people think about the will of God in terms of something subjective, such as what's God's will for my life. But we have to start, before we get there, before we get to any kind of application, you always have to start with God in his character and in his essence. The men want to always start with our experience. We want to start with us. But we always have to start methodologically with God, his character, and the word of God. And then we proceed from that before we finally get down to application. So we define the term will of God in relation to God's plans for his creation, for his creatures. And then we see that we divide God's will, or the discussion of God's will, into three categories. Three general categories for God's will. First of all, God's sovereign will. This is sometimes called God's decreed will or God's decretive will. And it includes, of course, His permissive will. We don't know God's sovereign will. That is what He has decreed and determined will take place in human history. The second category is God's revealed will. This is what He has revealed to us through His Word. Sometimes this is called God's moral will or His desired will in contrast with His decreed will. And then there is God's overriding will. This is what takes place when man disobeys God and God either overrides in in grace to avoid destroying the creature or God overrides the consequences so the creature doesn't end up destroying himself. Now, if we chart this, we're going to draw a big circle here to indicate God's sovereign will. This circle encapsulates all of the decisions included within the decree of God in the Council of Divine Decrees. We don't know what those decisions are until history works out. You look at history and you see what God decreed to happen. But until it happens, we don't know what God's sovereign decree included. As a subcategory of God's sovereign will is God's moral will or His revealed will. That is a subcategory. God's sovereign will includes his permissive will to allow sin, to allow his creatures to rebel against him and all the consequences of sin and evil in among the angelic creatures and among mankind, the human race, and human history. So a subcategory is God's revealed will, what he has revealed um, to happen. Now, as a subcategory of that, we have God's specific will. See, sometimes God has a specific will for your life, and sometimes He doesn't have a specific will for your life. Not everything, and this is where I'm going to go in this whole outline of the doctrine, is that there are times when God might have a specific will for your life, and sometimes He doesn't. More often than not, God does not have a specific will for our life. We talk about categories of God's will, which we'll get into a little later, God's geographical will, God's operational will, these have to do with specific plans that God has for us at particular times. But most of the time, all we're dealing with is God's sovereign will, which is secret, and God's revealed will, which is found in the Scriptures. So let's go to... See, God's specific will comes and goes. You never know what it is. Verses for God's sovereign will. Daniel 4.35 
And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will. The he here is God. God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. This verse is taken from Nebuchadnezzar's recognition of the sovereignty of God after Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years out in the pasture eating grass, drooling, and letting his hair and his nails grow long and generally acting like a wild beast. That was God's punishment on Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance. Nebuchadnezzar looked out upon all that he had conquered and all that he built and said, I did it. God said, no, you didn't. I let you do it, and I'm going to let you learn that lesson the hard way. You're going to get out in the field and act like a cow for the next seven years. Well, after seven years of that divine discipline, Nebuchadnezzar recognized the sovereignty of God, and this is his statement. He says, but he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is answerable to no one. God has a decision. He has decided from eternity past how human history will work itself out. He has ultimately made the decisions. We just don't know what they are. We must always keep in mind that God's sovereign will, he has, in his divine decree, he has determined that his sovereignty will coexist with human freedom so that he does not override human volition. He does not negate our volition but he may, excuse me, he may override the results of that volition. For example, you may make a decision to do something, and if that is done under the filling of the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit and part of your spiritual growth, then you will, that will accrue to you as divine good. But God may have other plans and not allow you to carry out that desire. For example, he talks about this in Second Corinthians in the... Second Corinthians 9, where it talks about giving. And there the issue is on the desire of the individual. God may give you a desire, and he will honor that desire. That doesn't mean he'll give you the money to do it. He may not allow you to fulfill that desire, but that desire still accrues to divine good. Another passage of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Jesus Christ controls history. No matter what happens in the political realm, no matter what happens in the realm of uh, international finance and economics, God is still in control. Nothing can happen outside of God's sovereign will. That sovereign will includes both good and evil. Revelation 4.1 After these things I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. God is speaking. He says, I will show you what must take place after these things. For God to declare what will happen prophetically, He must be able to control it, to bring it into existence. And so God is in control, but once again, remember, He doesn't override human volition in the process. Ephesians 1.11 Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose. His purpose refers to God's divine plan as outlined in the counsel of divine decree. According to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision from the Lord. This tells us there's really no such thing 
as chance. Those of you who keep uh, hoping that the lottery is going to come your way, well, maybe there's some application for you. Romans 9.19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists God's will? God's sovereign will is secret, though. We do not know what it is. He has declared the end from the beginning, and so we have to be careful not to lapse into some sort of hyper-Calvinistic fatalism and think that because God's sovereign will is in control and he's declared history, that somehow our decisions don't matter. Because God has included within that complexity of all the events, He controls every detail from the most microscopic atom to the the largest galaxy. He controls everything. Yet, within all of that dynamic, God includes flexibility based on human volition. So, point four, the specifics of God's decreed will are secret unrevealed and unknown. We can't second-guess them. We don't know what will happen until it happens because God has declared not only the ends, but also that the means take place on the basis of human volition. So the specifics of God's decreed will are secret, unrevealed, and unknown. So we might say, well, what is God's will for my life? Well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about God's revealed will? Well, that's clear. Just go to the Scriptures and study the Word of God. We're talking about God's sovereign will. We don't know that until it happens. Only after we make decisions and things happen do we know what was actually included in the decreed sovereign will of God. Point number five. We can only know the specifics of God's revealed will, of God's moral will. This includes all the precepts, mandates, and prohibitions of the Scriptures. How do you know God's will? Look to the Scriptures. Let's see some passages. Romans 2.18 And know His will, and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. So one way the Jews in the Old Testament knew God's will was that they went to the law. They went to God's revealed Scriptures. And there they knew what His will was. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we're told, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So if you want to live inside that circle of God's moral will, then to be living in God's will means that you have an attitude of gratitude. You are grateful to what God has given you, and you are thankful, and you are thankful for everything, the good, the bad, the hard, the easy. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. See, part of God's will is that we grow and mature as a believer, that we go from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. Now, people ask, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, first of all, are you growing and maturing as a believer? If you're not doing that, it doesn't matter whether you're in New York or California or South Africa. You're out of God's moral will, His revealed will. So, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So the prohibitions of Scripture related to sin are part of living in the will of God. And then 2 Corinthians 6.14, frankly, this is something you parents ought to be drilling into your kids right now from the time they, they are old enough to be thinking about the fact that they're eventually going to be dating 
or the precursor for dating and finding a life's partner is the friends they make when they're young. And you need to be teaching them that they don't have friends, close friends, that aren't believers. You need to drill that into them and make sure. I remember even when I was in college, I came home and said, well, I went out with so-and-so this weekend. My mother said, are they a believer? I was. I remember a friend of mine when uh, I knew from school when I was about 11 years old, and I started hanging around with him. And my parents said, after a while, you can't do that anymore because they're not a believer. The Scripture makes it real clear that we have to. We need to be careful with whom we associate closely because they influence us, and and we of course can influence them and witness to them. But the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And this is specifically speaking in reference to marriage. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. So the will of God excludes getting married to someone who is not a believer. Point number six. Now, often it's taught that aside from the precepts of Scripture, aside from God's moral will, that there is a specific will that God has for every single believer. And sometimes you'll hear people talk about this, and they'll say, well, you need to get into the center of God's will for your life. You need to know God's perfect will for your life. And sometimes you'll hear illustrations, for example, from great heroes of of the faith, great missionaries like Hudson Taylor who went to China and was responsible for opening up China to the gospel, that he had found God's perfect will for his life. And when when he dedicated his life to the Lord and responded to that call of God to go to China as a missionary, that he had found God's specific will. And because he lived in the center of God's will, God blessed him and he had this tremendous ministry. But what about the... the, uh, that leaves, seems to leave no room for the missionary that also responds to God's call in his life to go out on the mission field, goes out on the mission field and spends their entire life witnessing to Hindus living in a mud hut out in a small village, traveling around always by either foot or by donkey, and after 50 years of ministry be able to say that, yes, indeed, you found God's will for your life and you led four people to the Lord. And I know a man uh, just like that. He spent his entire life in ministry after graduating from Dallas Seminary living with the, um, the lowest caste of untouchables in, in India for about 40 or 50 years. He married his wife there, and they had a daughter who came back to the States and went through Bible college. And I sat in class with him one day, and I didn't know this about him. And I was just amazed that somebody would do that. One of my classmates went to Cairo and spent 12 years living in the city of the dead with his wife and his two kids, and it was illegal for him to witness to people. So every day when he left his room and he went out into the streets and to make acquaintances among the Egyptians, the lowest level of Egyptian society, he always left his American passport at home so that uh, his wife could take it to the authorities and they'd be forced to go look for him if he didn't return but those are what some people are doing out there. You get these great examples of people like Hudson Taylor as if God's will is always successful. That appeals to American business success mentality. But God's will also includes room for failure. For example, Noah was 
right in the center of God's will, wasn't he? Not using it like they used the term. And Noah preached for 120 years and he didn't have any converts. See, human systems of success come in with a false scale of values and say that, that, well, he didn't build a big church and he didn't have hundreds of converts, so he was somehow a failure. But God puts him, Noah, right into the Hall of Fame chapter in Hebrews 11 because he believed God. And God uh, considered Noah to be a success because he was faithful, and that's the standard in the spiritual life. So we see that uh, there is this thing that many people are taught that God always has a specific will for you, and that is not the case. One example that is used to support this is Jonah. So, well, Jonah was sent to be a missionary to the Assyrians. And we go to passages like Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So God does have a specific will for Jonah at that point in Jonah's life. That wasn't God's will for Jonah to go to Nineveh a year earlier or two years earlier. Jonah was just going about his daily business, learning the Word, applying the Word, growing and maturing. All of a sudden, God then had a something specific. See, God may only have one specific thing for you to do in your life. The rest of it is just the general application of Scripture, growing to spiritual maturity, witnessing, being involved in a local church, being involved in ministry, giving, prayer, all the functions of your priesthood. That's God's will for your life. Whether you do it in Preston, Connecticut, New York City, Houston, Texas, Fargo, South North Dakota, wherever you do it, you can do it to the glory of God. Now, when God has something specific, He's going to make sure it's clear. And He made sure it was clear. He spoke verbally to Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh. But Jonah, verse 3, rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah did not want God's will for his life at that particular time because he hated the Assyrians. Now, another example that's used of God having a specific plan for people's lives is, is someone like Peter. Peter being sent to be a missionary to take the gospel to Cornelius. Now, most of the other Jews in Jerusalem weren't really in favor of that. They still thought Christianity was fundamentally Jewish. And even Peter did until he had a vision. Acts 10.17, we're told, Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, now notice, Peter had a vision. He had a vision. Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having been asked directions, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And... What happens in 10.20, or 10.19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. So the Holy Spirit speaks verbally and audibly to Peter and tells him what's going on. And then in Acts 10.20, Arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. So in Acts 10... We see that Peter has a specific will. God has a specific will for Peter's life, and that is to go at that moment in time to Cornelius. And he is told that by the Holy Spirit. Another example 
that is used to substantiate the fact that God has a specific will for people's lives is Paul's being sent as an apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, 1 and 2. There we read, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Keep dropping verses there. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, the Holy Spirit speaks and gives them direct information about His will for Barnabas and Saul. Now, the thing we have to notice from all of these examples is that at most there's only 15 to 20 examples in Acts where God gives them specific directive information. Only about 15 to 20 examples. Most of the time, the decisions that are made are made by weighing and evaluating the issues. For example, in Acts 15.36, we read, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. See, look at how he makes the decision. After some days, he says to Barnabas, let's go visit. It seems good to us. It's a good idea to go back and check up on them. It's not because God has directed them. He's not saying, well, is it God's will, Barnabas, for us to go back and visit the brethren in the city? Let's pray about it, Barnabas, and see what God wants us to do. You know, we don't find that methodology there. He just makes a decision based on weighing the, uh, the data. Acts 20.16 For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Now Paul at this point I think is heading to Jerusalem when he should be heading to Rome but he's making his decision based not on he's not sitting there he hasn't been directed by the Lord to avoid going yet and he's, he's not being told He's not sitting there bowing his head and saying, Lord, tell me whether or not I ought to skip Ephesus. He stopped in Miletus after that. And I think that's where he had his first warning. Then we see in Romans 1.10, Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. At that point, Paul didn't know when he would get to Rome. He was uh, writing from, uh, on his second missionary journey. And he's trying to decide when he will get there. He doesn't know. He says, it may be God's will for me to come, and we need to pray that eventually I'll get there. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far. You see, that's our experience. He keeps planning to go. He knows eventually it's God's will, or because it's God's will generally for him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and Rome is the capital. So it's not that he's dealing with something specific at this point. He just, he's just working out his plan, and this seems to be the best procedure. 1 Corinthians 16.4 And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. 
But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. Perhaps I shall stay with you, or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I go. Notice his decision-making here and his planning. It's what seems best at the time. He's not saying, you don't see him say, I'll come to you after I go through Macedonia, if the Lord wills, and I pray about it, and, and maybe I'll stay with you, but we'll wait and see what the Lord tells me to do. See, he's not acting as if God has a specific will for every place and every event in his life. Point number nine. Knowing God's will, or excuse me, point number eight. Something dropped out on the overhead. Point number eight is... The problem in all of these incidences of a specific will of God, that specific will is known only through special revelation. The problem is that in every single incident where we deal with a specific will of God, that will is only known through special revelation. Now, those of us who believe that revelation has ceased and that the canon is closed, ought to have a major problem with the way most evangelicals teach the will of God. How do you know God's will? Well, I go into my closet and I pray and I wait till I have some kind of liver quiver, some kind of sense that God has spoken to me. God gives me a peace of mind. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you pray about it, and when God gives you that peace that passes understanding, then you know it's God's will for your life. And so it becomes this very subjective thing based on emotion, really. And, and, uh, and that can lead to some, some real problems. If you notice the examples that I cited for God's specific will, they individuals knew what God's specific will was only because God directly spoke to them, a prophet directly spoke to them, they had a vision given them by God, God the Holy Spirit spoke to them, and in a couple of cases in Acts, miracles occurred indicating what God's will was. That's how they knew what God's will was if there was something specific. Also, all of the examples that are usually given for knowing that God has a specific plan for your life, or a specific thing for you to do in your life, all derive from, mostly derive from Acts and from the Old Testament. They don't derive from New Testament epistolary literature. So the conclusion from that is that although God may at times have a specific place, a specific location in mind for you to live, to minister, a specific thing for you to do, if you are carrying out the general things in God's plan for your life, if you're walking in the moral will of God, if you're filled with the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, abiding in Christ, studying the Word, growing and maturing, if you are open and responsive, then even if you make the wrong decision, God is not dangling this thing out there like some kind of a, of a game contest. And if you, you just have to guess what His will is, and if you miss, oops, you're out of, out of luck, and you're not going to have God's blessing for the rest of your life because you just missed God's specific will for your life. That's not the way it happens at all. Even if you make the wrong decision, God's plan is flexible enough to bring you back 
the issue is God. if God wants you someplace, you're going to get there as we see in Jonah. God wanted Jonah in Assyria. He had a specific plan and purpose for Jonah in Assyria, in Nineveh. And even though Jonah said, no, I'm going the other way, God did whatever was necessary to bring Jonah back to God's geographical plan for his life. The same thing happens with Paul. God wants Paul to go to Rome. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. So Paul ended up going to Rome in chains. When God has a geographical will for your life, He will bring it about and you will get there. The issue is whether or not you're sharp enough and responsive enough to the Lord to go there of your own volition or drag kicking and screaming like Jonah. Okay, point number nine. Knowing God's will, therefore, is really based not on some sort of emotional liver-quiver uh, mystical experience, go into your closet and pray kind of thing. It's based on the grace learning spiral. We study God's Word, God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us, becomes uh, gnosis and then epinosis. God the Holy Spirit teaches us doctrine, and through the doctrine, He guides and leads us according to Galatians 5.18. It's always objective. Even in the Old Testament, when God spoke in private to a prophet, it was always substantiated by external, objectifiable, verifiable data. When God the Holy Spirit worked subjectively and came upon Saul, then Saul went and he spoke among the prophets and prophesied and sang hymns and uh, with the prophets there in First uh, Samuel, I think it's about First Samuel 10 or 11, and then he went out and led an army in victory against uh, the enemies of Israel. That substantiated the private work of God. So even when God works privately and, sub and subjectively, it is always confirmed clearly by external, verifiable, objectifiable uh, events. So knowing God's will begins, we're talking about the moral will of God, we have to begin by learning the Scriptures. Now, in Colossians 1.19, we read regarding the Scriptures, For it was the Father's good pleasure, this is the Father's will, for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is, in Christ, revealing that it is what God's will is. So we know God's will from the Scriptures. Colossians 4.2, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, this is not a specific will of God, but the prayer is that you can stand fully assured in the moral or the revealed will of God. Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. Now, renewing of your mind is learning Bible doctrine, learning the Word of God, learning to think like Christ thinks. And by thinking that way, thinking according to doctrine, then we demonstrate, we prove, that's what prove means here, we demonstrate in our lives that God's will, God's plan, God's procedures, and God's principles revealed in the Word of God, that we demonstrate that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Our life becomes a visible testimony 
that God's will, His revealed will, works. The doctrine works and solves problems. Ephesians 5.17 So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that is followed by the command not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. So once again, God's will is defined in terms of spiritual and ethical principles, not in terms of the kind of specificity that some people suggest. Ephesians 6, six: it's not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God. That is, applying the Word of God consistently in your life from the heart. That is, the inner thinking part of the cognitive function of the soul. If he, uh, Proverbs 3, 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, that is, our own finite resources based on rationalism and empiricism. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. That means that if you're walking in obedience, learning God's will, God's going to direct your paths. You're going to go where God wants you to go. He's going to override decisions if necessary. He's going to bring the right circumstances to bear. But you can't slip and make a bad decision that's outside the will of God that then messes up your life for the remainder of your days on earth. That's not possible. If you're trusting the Lord, He will make those paths straight. Psalm 32.8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. How is that done? How does God instruct and teach us in the way we should go? Through His revelation in the Scriptures, the precepts, principles, promises, and procedures outlined in God's Word. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. All of these are promises indicating that God's will relates to the revelation of moral principles in His Word. Now, a great example of this is found in Gideon. This is one of my favorite little episodes in the Bible. Gideon was one of a group of rather interesting leaders in Israel during their formative stage called Judges. They're not judges like you think of judges. These are not magistrates sitting on the bench handing down judicial decisions. These are military leaders who are ruling the nation under a special empowerment, endowment by God the Holy Spirit during this time of Israel's history. They functioned as, uh, as we would call judges, as magistrates. They functioned uh, as rulers. They functioned as military leaders. They covered a host of responsibilities. Now, Gideon's interesting, and a lot of people teach, get, teach about Gideon that uh, you, you sort of have to put out the fleece to find out what God wants you to do. Well, let's see if that's true. Is that what Gideon was doing? Was he really trying to find God's will? kind of summarize and slip through the passage real quickly. Israel, is in the first six verses, outlines the historical circumstances that the Midianites, which is kind of a roving band of, of uh, Bedouins and an army that would come in and they would conquer the Israelites and all the, the sons of Israel in verse 2 would have to hide out in the caves and the mountains and the Midianites would come down just at harvest and they would come through and they would steal all the grain, all the wheat and... Uh, once again, the Jews would be left with nothing and would be impoverished for another year. So every year this cycle went on, and it was part of divine discipline on the nation because of their idolatry and rebelliousness towards God. In verse 7, we see God's grace and their, for their recovery. It came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, 
that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, and he reminds them of his faithfulness, bringing them up from Egypt. Verse 9, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. And the basic message of the, of the prophet here is to repent, that they need to turn back to God. And God, because they do that, God's going to provide a deliverer in the um, person of Gideon. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. Now, here's this great warrior. He's down here in the, in the wine press because it's below ground level. He's hidden. The armies, when the, these marauding Midianites aren't going to see him, so he's hiding away. And he's trying to thresh out at least some wheat so that uh, they can survive the winter. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, appears to Gideon and gives him special revelation. little tongue-in-cheek humor in the process. Shows that the Lord's just not all serious all the time, but he does have a sense of humor where man is concerned. The angel of the Lord, the Lord says to him, The Lord's with you, O valiant warrior. Well, he's anything but a valiant warrior hiding away in the wine press. And Gideon says to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is really with us, why then is all this, he's already whining and griping, why has all this happened to us? which our fathers told us about. Didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us. So he's down here crying and whining about all the suffering in his life. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And at this point, Gideon begins to realize that he's not talking to just somebody who happened by that afternoon. He says, Oh Lord, how shall I deliver? I'm nobody, Lord. Now don't be doing this to me, Lord. He says, I'm a nobody here. I'm from the smallest tribe. I'm the youngest in my father's house. And the Lord again gives him specific directions. God has a specific will for Gideon's life. He says, Surely I will be with you and you will defeat Midian, Midian as one man. So God has a specific will for Gideon's life. Do you understand what God's will is for Gideon's life? It's to go defeat the Midianites. Do you think Gideon understood that? Gideon understood it very clearly. But you see, that, what, that teaches us that Gideon's little episode with the fleece is not to find out what God's will is for his life. It's to try to come up with an impossible scenario so he can rationalize not doing God's will. See, Gideon is not seeking God's will here. He's seeking to avoid God's will because he doesn't want to go out into the battle. And that's what this whole episode is about. Verse 17, Gideon says to the angel, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And people try this all the time. Lord, what do you want me to do? Oh, I know what you want me to do, but, but give me a sign anyway. In other words, they want to try to create some scenario they know God won't fulfill it, and then they, can, they feel justified in disobeying. So Gideon prepares a sacrifice here. 
and the angel of the Lord, verse 21, would you hit the high points? Skip down to 21. He puts meat and unleavened bread on the rock. The angel of the Lord puts out the end of the staff in his hand and touches the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord vanishes into thin air from Gideon's sight. So at that point, Gideon realizes fully who this is. And he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord says, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Now skip on down because there's another little interesting episode that takes place before we get down to the uh, fleece episode. So uh, Gideon says in verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If your will deliver Israel through me, now think about this, folks. God's already made it clear to Gideon that he's going to deliver Israel through Gideon. If you're really going to do this, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will do it. So the next morning, when he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece, and he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Now, Gideon, you just see, well, I guess that could happen. You know, the wool just absorbed the water. And the, or, or the, kept the water there because it's not it doesn't absorb the water in the ground. It was really it's been really dry. It, it really was do everywhere else in the ground just absorbed the water. Let's try one more time, God. Let's make it a little more difficult. Don't let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew all over the ground. Says, and this is going to be impossible. That ground's going to soak it up again. There's no way this can happen. Verse 40, God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. So when we look at Gideon, he is not seeking God's will. This is not a way to find out. I always wanted to ask somebody why the Gideons call themselves the Gideons. Because Gideon is not your great hero. He, he's your shrinking violet, and the last thing he wants is to is to um, to be God's deliverer. In fact, at his moment of triumph, the people want to make him a king. This is over in chapter eight. The people want to make him a king, and Gideon is, has a lot of humility, and he says, "No, no, 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 no. I don't want to be a king. Don't make me king." And he acts humble. But then he has a son. And he names his son Avimelech. Avimelech in Hebrew means my father's king. <laughs> See, that's why you have to know the original languages. You just the, the sense of humor that's there is, is just wonderful. So, so Gideon is just a great. I just love to laugh at Gideon because he's like most of us. We want, oh Lord, what's your will? No, not that. So we have here in the case, putting out the fleece, the case of Gideon. Don't try to test God to find out what His will is. Go to God's Word and be willing to do it. Eleventh point, the geographical will of God is a term that relates to operating in a specific location. But even in the examples in Scripture where God does have a specific will for someone in a specific geographical location, it's not for their, necessarily for their whole life. Or it's, or it's not that God always has a specific geographical will for their life. It may involve a lifetime ministry in one location. It may just be that, 
that for this point in time, God has a specific geographical will. But once that your job is accomplished, then it's time to move on. And then there is no specific geographical will after that. It's just the, back to the general moral will of God operating in your life. Example, Jonah in Nineveh, but after he's through in Nineveh, God no longer has a specific moral will for him. Same thing, Paul goes to Rome. After he completes his task in Rome, then it's up to Paul to determine where he goes next to fulfill his responsibility as an apostle to the Gentiles. Eleven, same thing with the operational will. Operational will of God includes both your spiritual gift and your natural talents and abilities. Now, God generally wants you to grow and mature as a believer. In that process, you will discover that you have an affinity for certain things, certain ministries, whether it's prayer, whether it's faith, whether it's administration, whether it's teaching, whatever it might be, that will become evident to you just in the same way in the natural realm as as a person grows up, they study everything. Your parents will have you take ballet lessons and They'll have piano lessons and join the band and get in debate society and and whatever it is, explore everything and you're going to discover in that process that you have an attraction towards certain things, wood shop, metal shop, whatever it is, and and that's where you will gravitate over life because that's where your talents lie. And eventually you will look back and you'll say, well, this is what I like to do. These are where my gifts are. Some people, it takes longer than other people. But the same is true in the spiritual life. Is As you grow and mature, you need to be involved in all avenues of ministry as part of your priesthood, giving, prayer, teaching, witnessing, whatever it may be. Just because you don't have the gift in that area doesn't absolve you from responsibilities in those areas. We're all to be involved in giving, but some people are gifted in giving. Uh, uh, some passages in Scripture teach that that many people may be involved in teaching at different times, even though it may not be their spiritual gift. Uh, parents are supposed to teach doctrine to your kids. Now, you may not have a spiritual gift of teaching, but nevertheless, it's your responsibility to teach doctrine to your kids. And it's not the church's responsibility per se. It's primarily your responsibility. So the operational will of God includes both your spiritual gift and your natural talents, and sometimes God will bring that into a specific situation and have a specific will for you operationally. But God will make that clear, and you don't have to worry about missing it if you are uh, responsive to God's work in your life. Twelve, often decisions in life are not related as much to the final decision as God is testing our decision-making process. He's testing the process of deciding. Are we going about it in a... God glorifying manner. We, we've got a decision to make in our life. Are we going to pray about it? Are we going to uh, study God's Word, determine what God's Word has to say about the situation, and then ultimately make a decision based on what we think will bring the greatest glory to God in terms of utilizing our spiritual gifts, our talents, honoring God, fulfilling all of the, all of the various mandates in Scripture, being in a location where we can get the uh, greatest Bible teaching we can, the best Bible teaching we can, so that we can grow and advance as believers. So often, it's not so much that the choice A or B is wrong. Either choice could be right. The test is, how do we go about making the decision? Verse 13, Numbers 22, 12 through 26, reveals these three categories 
of God's will. God revealed His will to Balaam. He told him not to go to Moab in Numbers 22.12. In Numbers 22.20, even though Balaam went, went to Moab, God allowed him to. That was the permissive will of God. And then, in Numbers 5.15 and 26, God overruled Balaam in his decision. Point 11, in decision-making and wisdom. This is the issue in decision-making, is, is utilizing the wisdom of Scripture, the epinosis that's in your soul, weighing all the facts and making a decision. Turn to Acts 15. We'll wrap up by looking at this decision that is made in Acts chapter 15. Now, the problem here has to do with whether or not how the Jews are going to include Gentiles into the general uh, new movement of Christianity. And they have a council in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council, and they have to make a decision because there's been a lot of controversy now about uh, whether or not Gentiles ought to be circumcised, whether or how they were related to the Mosaic Law, etc. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. Notice, it doesn't say the apostles and the elders came together to seek God's will on the matter. It says the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter because they have revelation. So they have God's will. Now they have to decide how they're going to apply it. Verse 7, And after there had been much debate, so there was a lot of discussion, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know, and he relates what happened with him back with Cornelius in Acts 10. And we read through that and then go down to verse 12. All the multitude kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they related with signs and wonders what God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Now, James has reached a conclusion. He's the uh, presiding officer at the meeting. He's the head of the church of Jerusalem the pastor there, and he says in verse 14, Simeon, that's Peter, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament. Then skip down to verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment. Notice how the decision is reached. It is not a decision, well, God has spoken to me, and this is God's will not how they go about this decision. They, they have weighed the biblical data, they looked at the principles, and now they have to make an application based on this reservoir of epinosis in their soul. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. After listening to the testimony, it's obvious God's doing a work among the Gentiles but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he has read in the synagogues every, every Sabbath. Then, it, then look at the other key phrase here. We're not concerned with all the other details of the passage. Just look at how they made their decision. Verse 22. He says, this is my judgment. This is my conclusion having weighed the data. Now look at what they decide. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. In other words, it's, this seems like the good thing to do. 
This is agathos, good of intrinsic value. So it seems like the good thing to do for us to make this decision. We've weighed the evidence, and we're going to use wisdom. That's why when you get up in the morning, you don't pray and say, Well, Lord, you want me to wear a brown suit or a white suit today? Want me to wear brown shoes or black shoes? Should I put my white, left, foot, left shoe on first or my right shoe on first? See, if you take that, that idea that God has a specific will for your life to its logical conclusion, then every decision has one thing that's in the right will of God. Because if you get up in the morning and you can drive five or six different routes to work, if you drive one route, there may be a wreck and a detour causing you to go somewhere. You may be stopped in traffic, get the opportunity to witness to somebody. All kinds of things could happen. And so people would have you believe that you would even have to pray about that because if you missed that and you went the other way, then you missed God's perfect will for your life that morning. And see, that's not how it operates. God has a will for you, and sometimes there's a specific will, and God will make sure you're there if you're responsive. But the issue is, am I following what I know to be true about God's Word? Am I learning the Word of God? Am I making the learning of Bible doctrine the highest priority in my life? Am I walking by means of the Spirit? Am I filled with the Spirit? Am I uh, applying what I know consistently? How is my prayer life? Do I have an attitude of gratitude towards everything? These are the things that make up the will of God. So decision-making, then, is not always a matter of trying to play some cosmic guessing game with God as to what He wants you to do today as much as it is just applying what God has already given you and then as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says God promises that He will make our path straight. Now the problem in James is that they weren't responsive to God and they just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and they took no thought for God's moral will. Neither were they concerned about God's sovereign plan for their particular life. They're operating on arrogance, and that's why in verse 16, James says, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. See, they're so carnal and so such reversionism that they're proud about their arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do, and here we have the word kalos. This is the good thing to do. That which is directed by God. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do, which you now know because I've written it to you, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know what God's revealed will is, and you refuse to do it, that's sin. That's a clear definition of sin. Any violation of the revealed Word of God, that is sin. Well, we'll come back and start James 5 next time with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank You that we have Your Word and that Your will is not something hidden. It's not some shell game where we're trying to guess at what Your will is for our life. But when You have something specific for us, You do make that clear. And if we are responsive, if we are submissive to Your Word and oriented to Your authority, then we will arrive where You want us to be. Father, we pray that You would make us responsive to Your Word because that is where Your will is contained. And we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge as we have studied it tonight. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.